0: Hi, I'm Lisa Morton, founder of Roland Transville PR, and this is our We Built This City podcast. This podcast is made of the conversations of the Mancunians born, bred and adopted that put the heart into modern Manchester. We're a city that literally rebuilt itself after the IRA bomb exploded in Manchester City Centre in 1996. While the city continues to grow brick by brick, we know that what makes it great are the people that come together day in and day out, even if it is via video call right now. One of these people is my guest, Manchester Bored and Bred, and Manchester Red, Gary Neville. That
1: Manchester United sort of lesson is, you go for it, you think you're right, and you don't stop. <laughs> <laughs> but then sometimes you get a little slap round the face.
0: <laughs> a one-club man, Gary's made over 400 appearances for Manchester United between 1992 and 2011. And after retiring from professional football, he's gone on to have multiple business interests across many sectors. But his heart lies in one place Manchester. Hi, Gary. Thanks for joining me today on We Built This City.
1: Hi, Lisa. How are you? You good?
0: I'm great. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Yeah. And thanks for taking the time because I know how busy you are at the moment the first question is you said that when you're united you use the time you weren't playing or training wisely because no matter how well you're doing you always need a plan b why has plan b always been so important to you
1: i've always worked in sort of like i've always imagined the worst so even when i signed uh, contracts at united i always signed five-year deals six-year deals seven-year deals planning that i would get injured or that something would happen i and because I wanted to stay at the club as well. Um, And I always wanted to give myself time to be able to uh, prepare for what might be obviously the biggest change in my life. And I think that's how I've worked since I finished playing football uh, in terms of sort of trying to sign three years or four-year deals with Sky and thinking of it in three and four-year blocks, um, knowing that if at the end of that Sky don't want me anymore, I've got got time to be able to pray. I think the worst thing in life is where you get the shock and the surprise, and it's something you don't expect. And that's what this virus has actually given us all, I think, in the last couple of months. And it's it's obviously tested all of our reaction skills. But I think in terms of a plan B, um, it's just making sure that you... Ultimately, and that's where when I finished playing football, I went into coaching, I went into the media, I had business interests, I suppose I had plan A, B and C really, knowing that if one of them sort of fell over, which one of them quite spectacularly did, <laughs> then, I able, then I was able to be able to sort of navigate and do other things. And I always say to football players, even in these last few weeks, learn another skill. do do something that's away from what you obviously do at the moment, which is football. And that might still be in football. It might be coaching. It might be the media because you will need it one day. And I think at some point, uh, also, I think students, students at our university, I always say to them, don't just think down one path because I think the way in which we're built nowadays, it's unusual to stay in one job for 40 years. You do want to change your direction. Uh, So if you've got another hobby, another a skill another talent, then develop that at the same time. Understanding that one day you might become stale, and you do want to change your direction. So I think it's just it's just sensible to uh, have something else to be able to go to.
0: And out of kind of plan B, C, D, and E that you've kind of you've put into place, have you got a stronger leaning to any of those wider business sectors in particular?
1: Yeah, I, I, I'm I'm definitely becoming more focused and more streamlined. the further I get out of football. Um, I always felt as though I'm 45 now. I always felt like 50 was going to be the big change point for me. I always felt I had 15 years of really high energy, pursue as many things as I wanted to do, but it would become more refined towards my 50th birthday. And I think what I've seen in the last few years is that I've started to move away from, say, F&B as a as an industry. Um, I think in terms of the developments that I'm doing, they're becoming sort of less, doing less in development, but obviously doing sort of big ones. Um, I'm focusing a lot on the broadcasting side of things and sort of the media side of things. So I think I'm passionate about the broadcasting media side of things. I'm passionate about the club ownership uh, and sort of business and sport. And I think hopefully in five years time, I'll be in a position where i have had a 15 year sort of what would be business broadcasting career that will enable me to be able to really hone in on one particular role. I wake up in the morning. Sometimes I've got such sort of different projects, hospitality development, education, uh, the broadcasting part of it and obviously the football club i'd I'd like to get to a point in five years where i wake up every day and just think of one thing yeah that's where i think i could see whether i get the best out of myself really at the moment i'm really sort of split amongst the five six different sectors that i'm in
0: and you've grouped your business interests under the umbrella relentless group why did you come up with that name
1: <laughs> uh it's was my favorite word it was something that i felt described uh manchester united and uh the people I played with, my own career, that it was non-stop. It was 100 miles an hour every single day. Everything was 100%. And I just felt as though that's the word that I would use to sort of describe the life that I've lived so far. So I grouped everything under that name. Um, I believe that Sir Alex Ferguson at United uh, had us pursuing a relentless attitude every single day, respective of whether we won or we lost, good day, bad day. Uh, we had to come back the day after and do the same thing again and reproduce our standards, our work ethic, uh, our attitude, and anybody who dropped below that was was gone. Uh, so just the, the word just seems to epitomise what I've been exposed to and what I feel like every single day in my life, and have been like that probably since the age of sixteen. And like I say, I think I want to get to fifty. I don't know why I've got this magic number 50 in my head. It just feels like the right time for me to be able to say, okay, I've come out of football. I had that career for 15 years, 20 to 35. I've then had a 15-year broadcast and business career. I can then really hone in on one particular thing and try and do one particular job really well.
0: You think you'll still do that relentlessly, though? There's a bit of you in there. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think I would look at the your know, sort of years from 50 to 60, and I, I do plan that far in front and think, right, that's 10 years where I've really got to go into one role do one thing with one ambition one focal point refine everything back uh, and I do think I'll still there'll still be an element of that where I'm non-stop where I think every single you know I wake up in the middle of night as I do now uh, every single night I wake up between three and four sometimes I get back to sleep for an hour five till six or something like that sometimes I don't I just get up uh, where I still think I'll have an element of that to me I think that's my personality it's probably, it's probably it's probably that that will also see me into an early grave as well at some point. <laughs> um, there'll be no shock if I sort of, you know, collapse. over. So, yeah, late 50s. I wonder why that happened. I, I don't think people will be asking why.
0: <laughs> well, I remember when you told me you were going to give skiing a go and you didn't think you were going to like it, and I said you'll really like it, and then you liked it, and then you've been more times now than most people no. in the whole life.
1: <laughs> Do you know why I like it so much? It's because... You know, I put I put that helmet on, I put the goggles on, I'm up on the top of a mountain, I can't use my phone, no one can talk to me, and I feel free. I genuinely feel free, and there's not many things in life, for everybody, I think, where you say, where, how do you escape? How would you get to a place where it's just complete zen, where no one's you know, harassing you, mithering you, asking you something, phoning you, emailing you, whatsapping you? And I've made some quite big changes in the last few months on that front. I came off uh, email, even though I've, I've dipped back onto it a little bit during lockdown, just f- purely for the fact that I can't be around people as much and talk to them as much and see documents as much. That you know, So basically, I came off email before Christmas, came off WhatsApp. I just felt it was a massive hassle every single day. I reckon I was in four million WhatsApp groups. I, pro- I suppose you are as well. Honestly, it's like someone sets up a different group every day and then you see a different group and you think who's on that group and it's like, oh, my God, honestly, it's just not right, that. So skiing, you're right. I I think I, I go three, four times a year. Even my summer holidays now are skiing because I just feel like it's the one thing that enables me just to completely escape without any interference.
0: Although I have to say, I did text you when you were on the slopes and you replied in about 30 seconds, so I'm not
1: sure you ever switched Oh, oh, you've always got the ski list in the chair.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You've also said that you didn't take anything for granted when you were a player, but have you realised that there have been things you've taken for granted, particularly say over the last couple of months?
1: Um, We didn't take anything for granted at United because I think we never felt as though we had a right to be at the club, to wear that shirt, to win a trophy. We always felt as though we had to work every single day to prove that. So I've never taken uh, hard work for granted or anything like that. What I do think that all of us probably in the last few weeks have realised that we do take for granted is the ability to be free. The ability just to go where we want, when we want, do what we want. But you never think in your life... That you're going to live through something like this you never think there's going to be i mean you think of our grandparents who lived through a, a world war two world wars and you never think you're going to be exposed to that you never think you're going to be exposed to a global pandemic it's not something that's ever entered our heads for the majority so i think the one thing that in the last few weeks that i've you know realized that obviously the freedom just to be able to get up in the morning and go out and go to work and do things and different jobs that we do different meetings we have see the people we see the restaurants we go to the bars we go to the socializing the football we go to all those things have gone and they're just the things that we believe are our rights we don't believe they're things that ultimately would ever be taken away from us the ability to do those things uh, everybody feels though they can wake up in the morning go and do something so this that, that definitely is something that i will never take for granted again and, and realize how lucky we are just to have the freedom because there are countries in this world who don't have the freedom to do what they want and they do have restrictions so yeah that's not not really taken for granted in terms of a work sense but definitely in terms of the freedom element
0: and do you think the disciplines that you learn at Manchester United have helped you to lead your team through this very challenging situation
1: yes because I, I have to say at Manchester United and it's the, it's the way in which you feel a little bit unbeatable success is giving your all every single day and not giving in that's all you can achieve in your life, really, as, as an individual person. So the minute that we heard about coronavirus, probably, say, last couple of weeks in February, when we, th- we saw it coming, particularly in the hospitality industry, we saw it first in the hospitality, in the hotels, because people started cancelling. Travel started being restricted. We had uh, bookings from Europe that were cancelled. We had, in- we had domestic bookings that started to fall away. And that's when we really started to sense that there was a real concern that it was coming our way. And we started to plan really early around that. So I think once you realize that you've got a problem, you either shrink and panic, freeze, or you deal with it head on. And I have to say that not just myself, but everybody else in our businesses, and it does come from anybody that played at United. You know, you you don't shy away from your problems. You own up to them. You take responsibility. You say when you've made a mistake. Uh, And you deal with it as quickly as possible. You don't bump things down the road. You don't shirk it. You don't go missing. You can't go missing. You're out on that football pitch in front of 75,000 people with millions of people watching on television. And you make a mistake you know, you can't exactly plead your innocence. It's there, for, it's there for all to see you've cocked up and you've given a goal away and you've messed up. So I think that mentality is in me and it is also, I think, generally in good people, honest people across all different businesses and industry that they'll front up. And we knew that we had a problem that we had to deal with. I think the thing that I always say is that plan for the worst is definitely the best way to be in all scenarios. I always plan for the worst whether it be coronavirus or whether it be that I'm going to lose my Sky contract in three years when my end of my contract's come. You've always got a plan that you, you know someone uh, is not going to take you on again or that your business is going to struggle or someone's going to leave you uh, and you're going to have a void. Yours is a plan for these things. We planned what we believe to be for the worst in the hotels. We don't think we'll get back to anything like normal trading until the end of 21, which is 18 months, which is horrific for all hospitality, restaurant, businesses. But it's going to be tough in every industry. There's no industry really that's going to sort of come out of this without some level of suffering. And I think if you understand that everybody's suffering, you can start to be... I've I've called from day one in football for a social approach where everyone looks after one another. And that means that employers look after their employees, but employees have to look after their employers. Um, that means that everybody looks after one another, understanding that we've all got to try and get through this. I do believe that the government measures that they put in place quite early around job retention scheme, the business loans, the self-employed scheme were helpful. I do think it's enabled businesses to keep more cash in their own banks and enable businesses to go and support staff more often than they would do. Because there is genuinely a case here where businesses cannot support their staff. They they just haven't got the money to pay them. And my worry, actually, uh, as we come out of what would be a more defensive phase when we're all sort of sat at home is when we reopen that is my biggest concern the trading numbers aren't there the revenue's not there the business just isn't there and the job retention scheme for businesses goes and all of a sudden you've got a real problem then because i do genuinely believe that the worst thing in the world is removing someone's employment where they've not got an opportunity to go and get income somewhere else it is really bad if you're an employer that is a real responsibility. And I, I always, wherever possible, try and make sure they have enough time to be able to go and get other income and other uh, ways of supporting the families in their own personal sort of economic situation. And, and the problem with this virus is that no one can afford to take other people on. So it's a real problem, this, that I worry about the next six months in respect of people's income. I know they're worried about health, but they're worried, about obviously, about their own financial situations.
0: We built this city podcast about the Mancunians born bred and adopted that put the heart into modern Manchester. The expression one thing you learn from experience is that you never learn from experience. It always makes me laugh. But and I think we can all relate to that. But is there something that you think you've perfected over the years through trial and error? <laughs> um perfected <sighs> or got good at?
1: I do think I'm really fair to people who are leaving our businesses, irrespective of what they've done, mm-hmm. or what's happened, or their performance levels. I do think I'm really fair at that. It does come from, it does from a come from a couple of football experiences. I used to because I was the PFA delegate from 23 United, uh, which is the union delegate, but also I was the captain from the age of what was it, 29, 30. I used to go and sit in with most of the young players that were being released by Sir Alex Ferguson which is a horrific experience. You're taking a young player's dream away. He All he wants to do is play for United. It's all he's ever thought about. And at the end of the season, each season, there'll be a group of young players that will be called into the manager's office and told they've no longer got a future at United. And you can imagine for a young person, that's a really difficult message to have to take. And um, rejection, particularly when you have set, set your sights on sort of what would be this great dream, is gone. So I used to go and sit in there, but Sir Alex... He didn't beat around the bush. You know, he would tell them directly, look, Son, you know, you know, I've got six players in front of you in your position and I don't believe you'll break through in the next couple of years. You need to go and play somewhere else. Um, so I won't be offering you a new contract at Manchester United. And it would be told to them in a sort of very you know, direct manner. He wouldn't fudge anything. He wouldn't sort of shirk it as you would expect. He had confidence and he had authority. But he said, what I have done, he said, I've spoken to three or four managers at clubs that I know really well. And I want you to go and speak to those managers because I think they'll give you a contract and I think they'll give you a a career back into football. And one day I hope that you can come back here and prove me wrong and you can come back and play for Manchester United. But you need to go at this moment in time and play somewhere else. So as he was giving them probably the worst message that they could ever receive in their lives, he was also giving them a leg up and making sure that they had a chance to go and prove themselves somewhere else. So that was a continual education for me in terms of how to deal with people that were leaving your company, your club, your team, that you had to make sure that they had a soft landing. So that's something that I think that I've got quite good at in my business sort of world. I don't just sort of leave people to go and say, "On, oh, you're out the door or tell other people they've got to tell them, uh, particularly the people that work closely uh, with me. And then when I was uh, 20 in the Euro 96 squad, I don't know if you remember the players smashed up a plane on the way back from Hong Kong. Uh, it, well, it was Paul Gascoigne. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and we, there was a massive, at the time, it was a massive problem. It was leading into the European Championships in England. So you can imagine the, the sort of the press and the media were just like hounds. They wanted blood. They wanted to know who it was. They wanted to know they wanted someone to be kicked out of the squad or the players responsible to be kicked out of the squad. It was a really bad thing actually. You can't call smashing up planes, to be fair. <laughs> so we we were caught we, we actually landed from Hong Kong. Everybody went to, uh, back home for two days with a two-day break before we met back up again at Burnham Beaches, which was our home before the European Championships. And all hell broke loose in the media. It was just everywhere. Front pages, back pages, every news story. The biggest tournament in England since 1966 was here and we were basically going into it in disgrace. And we all met back up on the Sunday night at Burnham Beaches and Terry Venables, uh, there was, uh, the international committee of the FA had said, look, we want to know exactly who did it and they're going to have to be removed from the squad. And Terry Venables came and addressed us. And he, to be fair, he read us the riot act. And he said, I can't condone it. I can't defend it. You've smashed up a plane. And the FA want to know who it is. And they want that person removed from the squad. And we went into a room, all the players. And I always remember Tony Adams standing up and saying, every single one of you shuts your mouth. Not one of you speaks to anybody. Not what any of you speak, tells anybody who it was. And at the time, we kept it quite quiet. There was a bit of smoke and mirrors about who it was. Was it was it or was it a few of the other other lads? Um, so there was no real definite who did it. Um, it was done in the middle of the night. It was an overnight flight back from Hong Kong, so everyone was asleep. <laughs> so no, even some of us didn't know who'd done it, um, even though we had a good idea. And Tony Adams said, it's quite simple. I'm going to walk back into the manager's office and I'm going to say to him that we're taking collective responsibility and if he wants to kick one of us out of the squad, then we'll all walk. And that's what I'm going to say. And he said, I'm also, we're also going to donate our match fees from our last two matches, which was something like at the time, believe it or not, it was about £1,500 per game for each of us. So I think it's sort of, there's about 25, 30 in the squad or something like that. So it added up to about 50, 60 grand. But at the time, it was quite a lot of money in football, believe it or not. Um, And we donated our match fees to pay for the playing damage and to, to charity and all that sort of stuff. And it just taught me a big lesson about, Never ditching on your teammates. Always standing together. Even if someone's made a mistake, stand by them. So where I think that I'm pretty good is I accept that people will make mistakes. I accept that on a night out there'll be a mess. There'll be fights. There'll things that will happen that won't always be perfect. I'll accept that you know people will do things that are wrong. There's obviously a line. Of course, there is a line, but I'll defend most things because, to be fair, over in football over 20 years, I saw most things. And I saw Sir Alex Ferguson defend people. I saw Tony Adams defend people. I saw Sir Alex Ferguson let people go and then make sure they had a leg up and take a personal responsibility to make sure that they had a career and an income after leaving Manchester United. So where I think I'm pretty good is on that front of making sure that my team are protected, even if they make a mistake, um, that we will try and look after them. Mm. Um, there's a there's an instance actually this year in the last 12 to 18 months in our hospitality business where there was a member of the staff had been caught, eventually but, but putting their hand in the till. Even on something like that, some business owners would look at that as, uh, that's a disgrace, that's crossing the line. It is, obviously. And they would obviously have to leave their employment within the company. There's no doubt about that. However, my view on that would be, why did they do that? What pressure are they under? What th- what's driven them to do that? They must have problems in their life. They must have issues. They must owe money. They must have credit card bills. They must have something. You know, it sometimes isn't just greed, So I always look at it with empathy and a little bit of sympathy that people do something sometimes because they've got, so even if somebody's done something wrong, which I know their employment has to, has to end, I will still make sure they get some money. I will still make sure they are looked after. I'll still make sure that they understand they've done wrong and they accept it. I think that's where, which way I would deal with things, even if someone's done wrong, because if it was my daughters when they're 18 and they make a mistake, I'd want their teacher, their boss to look after them. You know, I want them to accept that they've made a mistake and put it right for them and not just say, out you go, you're gone. Um, understanding that there is a line, that obviously, if you cross. So I think that's where I've... There's stories that have enabled me to become more experienced around those types of situations because of my experiences in football.
0: And a few of my previous guests on We Built the City have referred to you as an inspiration and a role model. Um, Chris Brindley, Sarah Collins, Liz Taylor. Last week, referred to, she said he's the man. <laughs> no, Liz,
1: Liz Taylor. I, I I actually heard that one, but trust me, Liz Taylor doesn't think that. She just wants my events business. She just she just wants she just wants money off me. She is smart
0: she said that wasn't because you might do another party by the way
1: <laughs> exactly she wants me to do another party off the back of this so that she can put a commission on i know she's not daft
0: <laughs> that's why we love her um and i i've seen certainly in working with you but definitely over the past eight, six weeks how committed you are to making sure that as you say that everyone's looked after Chris Brindley, in his conversation, they said that a team should be like, if somebody kicks somebody in the team, you've you've kicked all of the team. You limp together and you turn around and you say, who's done that? And I I can see that. Certainly, you know, we'd be very lucky to be involved in your fitness sessions and the pub quizzes and stuff like that has been amazing my my daughter's boyfriend's in lockdown with us he cannot believe that he's actually seeing you and ryan every in, in your running shorts he can't get over it um and, and thanks for lending me those very very small dumbbells gary i know it's
1: not it's not a pretty sight seeing me in my running shorts trust me
0: <laughs> all pets are off in the coronavirus To tell you know, no one cares. so obviously you are an inspiration so but have you seen what have you seen in your teams in particular in this time that has inspired you
1: Do you know something? There's a couple of businesses where the team have gone away. So I I tried from minute one to try and make sure everybody retained the same level of income, but it's tough. You've got five or six businesses, and there are a couple of businesses where the teams went away, discussed it between themselves, and came back and took uh, sort of like voluntary reductions in pay, and that that inspires me a little bit to want to work as hard as I possibly can for them and look after them as much. And there may be, when we reopen again and the business challenges become apparent for all our businesses, it may be at that point that, You know, I will need some support. We will need some support as shareholders because the reality of it is we don't know how bad this is going to get. And if you look at it, you'll know from looking at your business, Lisa, and you look at the cash flow projections for 12 months and 18 months. And if it's really bad and social distancing is still in place, travel restrictions are still in place. You really have to then sort of um, look at how your team can support you. And I think you'll have built up that trust in your business. Um, and I, I think hopefully my team have been absolutely amazing. They've continued to to train every single day together. We continue to have quizzes together. All the things that others are doing, it's not innovative, but they are sticking together. Uh, we want to. They want to get back in. And it's it, there was a football manager around me a couple of weeks ago, and he was just talking to me about the fact that his budget would have to be cut, f- you know, by probably about 25 percent next year. And he said that that could result in sort of ten people losing their jobs. And I said, that's just inconceivable. I said, that's inconceivable that you would th- that we could think that way. We all have to take a 20% pay cut to make sure that everybody retains income and everybody remains in employment. It is a duty of, I think, bosses but employees as well to look at it in a social manner in this next 12 months. Everybody, and it might be different percentages for different people, people who earn more might take a little bit more of a cut and people who earn less take obviously, less in different businesses. But I think that's the type of team that I would hope I have and I think I have and you hope you have and we have because there is no doubt this is not good. And the main thing is we have to make sure that people retain income so that they've got comfort and reassurance that they can support their family, support themselves, uh, not have to panic. There's nothing worse than being under what would be financial pressure unduly. Yeah, of course there should be a level of pressure to work hard and perform and do the right things, but... Also, that can't become a pressure to the point whereby it's unbearable. And then all of a sudden you start to panic and you start to make bad decisions. Um, so I think that the team have been really good, but it is going we're going to be tested like every other business in the next 12 to 18 months. And I'm looking forward to it mm. because what you've got two choices. You either don't look forward to it or you look forward to it. So you might as well look forward to it and think, right, how are we going to get through this? Communicate with people as quickly as possible. Make sure they're informed. Of what's going on at boardroom level and that's all i've been saying uh, sort of all the football meetings that i've been in make sure we communicate to our players to our staff make sure they know how bad it is what the challenges are the complexities of returning to football or whatever it might be make sure they understand it once they understand it then they'll make more rational decisions themselves so we've got some tough times to go through But we've had some great times in this last couple of years. You know, we've been skiing holidays three, four times in the last few years. We've had Christmas parties and other events where we have a great time together. But now it's where really you'll hope that spirit that you've built up, everybody digs in and we all come through it together. And we're going to need that because every business is going to need that. And I urge everybody just to sort of compromise.
0: Absolutely. And I think you're right. It's if you've had those values that you've you've developed as a team that kind of can keep you together in this time and and businesses that don't have that culture, or that value, they're going to struggle.
1: They are. And I played in the greatest era in one of the biggest clubs in the world for 20 years under the greatest manager, the man who built a siege mentality year on year at a football club where it was like an Island where no one could get near, no one could get near that Island. The odd person from time to time was invited on and then they would stay, but it was a siege mentality us against the world. And you're going to need that sort of spirit in the next six to 12, 18 months where it's going to be tough. And, you know, Chris is right in what he says. If one of your teammates gets kicked, you either leave him on the ground or you go and pick him up, not just pick him up, you then go and fight for him and make sure that the people who've kicked him are dealt with. And that's, yeah. I, I, it's football analogy, but sport, this is where sport and business ethics and values do come together because You see the teams that are divided, the the teams that have got self-interest, the teams that have got um, no cohesion. And then you see football teams that are completely together. Uh, And I hate to say it at this moment in time, but the two teams that represent that most, the teams that we don't particularly like that much in Liverpool and City. But when you go to watch Liverpool, their players, their manager, their fans, their boardroom, there is no crack. There is no crack. Jurgen Klopp, they absolutely love him the players love the manager, the manager loves the players, the players love the fans, the fans love the players, and that's what it was like at our club for 20 years under Sir Alex Ferguson. I do think Ollie's trying to rebuild that now, and you can see where there is that crack and where those divides are, and they're the teams that aren't successful.
0: We built this city, exploring the purposeful relationships that grow a community. I think um, talking about looking after people in another way, though, another expression we have is planting trees you'll never see, which is leaving a legacy for people that follow you. I've obviously seen the work that you've done. You're very committed to the bigger picture and helping communities and people less fortunate. You're one of the first businesses to open the doors at Stock Exchange and Hotel Football to NHS workers. Foundation 92 does lots and lots with uh, disadvantaged people in Salford and you, you're partners with Food You clearly think it's important for a leader or a sports person to use a platform to help do good things for people.
1: Yeah, look, there are a lot of people who do really good things, a lot of businesses, you and all the businesses in Manchester that do good things. I think we do, yeah, it's competitive. It's a competitive market in Manchester where people do look after obviously themselves and want to do the best for their own businesses. But I also think that um, they realise that they won't survive in the city unless they show an approach that looks after their own. I think that ultimately if you come into Manchester to set up a business, whether you're a local or whether you're from out of the city or internationally, you have to you have to show yourself to have immersed yourself in the local culture, what the city means to people. It's very difficult to get in, actually, if you don't demonstrate those qualities. So you're absolutely right. I think that we haven't got everything right, I'll be honest with you, in the last five to 10 years when I think of the first St. Michael's application, which had 5,000 objections, that's where you learn a lot because you you have that mansion that Manchester united sort of lesson is you go for it you think you're right and you don't stop <laughs> <laughs> but then sometimes you get a little slap around the face <laughs> and that's what st michael's did for me it actually taught me a little bit about politics in the sense that if you don't people if you you, you may think you're right and you may think it's a fantastic project or a fantastic idea but if you can't bring people along on the journey you've no chance of delivering it Uh, and the same with Turn moss i think in respect of in trafford when we were trying to deliver the sports complex linked to the university we had lots of local discomfort uh, objections i think those two experiences taught me a lot that actually you know you cannot just go and do what you want you have to bring local people along with you you have to yeah, they have to buy into your idea and your project. I think t- to be able to then get it through, and that, that those two experiences did teach me a lot. And I think that, we like I say, it's important that when you speak on something like this, we have always believed we're doing the right thing. We've always wanted to do the right thing for the wider community. But then you accept when you get a couple of things wrong. Uh, St. Michael's was a was a big thing, really. We were on the verge of getting to planning committee and building it. We spent millions of pounds on the planning application and and, and back-to-back design with that, thinking, imagining we were going to get that through the planning committee and build it, but we didn't do. And we got a slap around the face that, in hindsight, I always look at those things and think, right, you deserve that. (laughs) You know, it's a pretty bad experience. It's just like Valencia. You know, you go over there, you sort of go over there with best intention, you lose a lot of football matches and you get chucked back to England, but actually the lessons that you learn out of those experiences are greater than the ones where you get something right. So for me, I think I am different today um, than I was five years ago before I went to Valencia, before we started that first plant St. Michael's application and the term Moss, obviously scenario as well. Those three things have guided me a lot and that's your business experience. And that's why I think we probably dealt better with the coronavirus thing a few weeks ago. And, I think we're, we're more experienced to be able to deal with it now than we would have been 10 years ago. I probably wouldn't even thought of the NHS idea 10 years ago. But now I accept if you can give something back, if you can do something for people, you should.
0: And are there any of the values of uh, the ones that we set out Roland Johnsville way that kind of appeal to you? Because actually a lot of the stuff you said today um, resonates with all our values.
1: Well, you've got good people and that's the most important thing. Um, and I think that your people represent your business and everybody that I meet from Roland Ransfield, um, I always feel like they're happy, they want to do the job, they work in an environment that they're enjoying, they work for someone that they enjoy working with, um, and that is the most important thing. I do actually think it's the most important thing. The idea of waking up every single day and not enjoying what you're doing and who you're working with is like, that's my worst nightmare, that. Yeah. And at United, even though it was serious, and we had, we obviously had games to win and we had championships to win, we had a massive laugh every single day it was a continual
0: <laughs>
1: laugh for it was just you know it was just it was it was brilliant that's the thing i missed the most actually. Yeah. i don't miss the football yeah. cuz i got pretty bad at the end actually i missed i actually missed miss the going into the change room every single day but actually what we've got here now um, in, in, what we've got here now at St. Andrews is exactly the same type of spirit. We go on a, a skiing holiday together and it feels like a spirit that we had at Manchester United in a different way. And I think you've got that same spirit within your business yeah. uh, where people enjoy working there and enjoy being with each other. And that's a really important thing that when you're working with people every single day.
0: Totally. We just laugh all the time. That's the thing I'm missing now, even though we do laugh on our calls and stuff. It's just that joy of kind of walking through the door and there's something to, funny to laugh at all the time i do miss that it is your kind of family isn't it in a way you work families as important as your family at home so talking about families team neville is an incredibly strong brand and families really interest me and i just wonder what what was the glue that kind of kept you all together this long and it's is so tight knit
1: uh i think what well, one thing i would say is so i i'm happy to have rows with people i'm happy to fall out with people actually uh, <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, I am. I'm happy to fall out with people. I'm happy to row with people. But I set a completely different boundary with my family than I do with anybody else in a professional sense. So even if there's a member of my family, whether it's the sort of wider family that I don't particularly think a they would never know. Because I think the impact of actually falling out with one of your family members is great. Mm-hmm. And I had an experience when I was younger where one of my family members didn't speak to another one of my connected family members for about 10 years. And it meant that we didn't see those family members' children. And I always remember that and think nothing can be worth that, really. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to go into detail of who it was and who it was. They were quite close to us. And I've never once fallen out with a member of my family. They have, sorry. I never once have fallen out with a member of my family where I've not made up with them straight away within a day or two because I will never let that sort of thing to develop. And it's a little bit like that now here in the people I work with closely. We have disagreements, we have challenges, but I never let it go on because they're too important. They're, they're, They're too close. We've done too much together to be able to sort of not let it go. So in terms of family values, I really think that it's important that you are able to forget and forgive um, if you let something grow and develop, and it snowballs, all of a sudden you've you, you've you've split a whole family up. Particularly in a family like ours, where you've got strong characters, and every family is the same. Like my brother, my sister, myself, my dad, my mum, and and if any if anything ever came between us and others, then it would just completely just create divides. Where you, that idea that you, you then you, well, who do we invite to this Christmas day? Who do we invite to this birthday lunch? None of that nonsense. No. There is n- I don't have any of that nonsense in my life. I do not let any of that stuff get into my life. Everybody gets invited. If people don't want to come because they've got a problem with someone else, that's fine, but it isn't through me or it isn't through sort of, you know, our family. So same in, same in the office. I invite everybody. And if people don't want to come, that's fine because they don't get on with each other within the office. And, and that happens, but it's it won't come through me. So they're the things that I think keep me very tight to my family is that I don't let... I was really annoyed with my sister earlier on this week, to be honest with you. (laughs) I was so wound up, honestly. (laughs) It was a fitness session. One of the fitness sessions, Lisa, and she basically wanted to start it without me. I was on yeah. it. At <laughs> oh, least we were all scared.
0: We were all scared, Carrie.
1: <laughs> so for two days after, I told her to F off about 40 times. Proper, I was proper angry with her. She just kept telling me sending me pictures of a of, of baby, <laughs> a new baby. <laughs> Said he loves you. <laughs> and, I, and I replied to her saying, Tell him to tell you to F off as well. Then but then I, she I just know I won't let it go over a period of three days. Yeah. Um, and it's a lot like it gets forgotten about. So I just things like that. I, I will never let things like that happen. It's more, important, it's more important to keep the family together than it is to allow what would be a difference to develop.
0: I think, so Chris Brindley says that. He talks about the emotional bank account. So if you've got enough credits in there, you can te- can make some debits and, the, yes. and it's all fine. And I love that analogy. That's so true. You're a great relationship builder. Are there any relationships that have been really important to you outside of the family?
1: Outside of the family? The first person who influenced me most was uh, was Eric Harrison my youth team coach at Manchester United, tough Yorkshireman who, in his words, knew how to make someone a Manchester United player. And I don't believe any of us were Manchester United players when we first arrived at Old Trafford at the age of 16. I believe he nurtured us. I believe you can be taught um, a lot of the sort of personality and character traits in life. I don't believe you're born with these things. Uh, I think that, you know, through through your parents, your teachers, good influences around you that you become better at the real basics in life which are having a good attitude determination you know will to succeed uh, not giving in um, and all these things that I think Eric Harrison instilled into us in a two-year period with Nobby Styles really give us the foundation to go on and then Sir Alex Ferguson would be the next person because he without him and his courage to give us a chance and believe in us um, we wouldn't be anywhere today and there are so many managers, um, all over the world, who think in a short-term way. Who think in a way which means that they've got two, three years at a job. They'll come in, they'll look to do a, a, a you know a successful job, but they're not really thinking of the long term. You know, he came in to Manchester in in 1986. And thought about the next 15 years, didn't think about the next 15 days or 15 minutes even, which is what happens now in football. And if you think about when he came in in 86, and I was part of the Centre of Excellence as an under-11 in 1986 and saw the overhaul and change of the youth development all the way through, and then that vision come into the fall where five or six lads out of his youth team were in the team in the treble in 99. It's sort of, you know, 13, 14 years of hard work, and that's what long-term... Um, You know, he believed in longevity, believed in doing things the right way. And I think he was somebody who um, was a constant throughout my life. And even to this day, I always think back, uh, even with mistakes that I've made, I always think, why didn't I just follow some of the rules that he set? Why didn't I look at it? So even now, you know, my dad or Sir Alex, even though I'm not in contact with Sir Alex every day, I still speak to him. They really are sort of people who I would think, what would they do? What would they have guided me to do? How would they have approached it? Mm -hmm. Um, I think that since football's finished, I think there was a producer at Sky and a director who influenced me heavily in terms of how I am as a broadcaster and how I am as a presenter, your know, pundit, whatever it is, it's, um, that be myself, speak as I am, don't try and sort of be someone else. And really, was they were quite brutal with me in the early days and quite firm with me, and I need that. I need people to be firm with me and sort of bring me back on track so yeah I think that that that, that was that influenced heavily in my broadcast career. I think sour Bernstein's been a big influence on me in the last 5 or 10 years in terms of making me understand sometimes more experienced people bring a calmness to you and Saul Bernstein, Peter Lim, you know little things. Mm. Little little Sort of nuggets of information that sort of stick with you and influence you and make you think that's a good idea and there aren't many people like that in your life life's too fast you hear a million words every day don't you and there's very few individual things that stick with you and have a lasting impact on you but I think those those people do uh, have an impact on me
0: and you are there for so many people is there across across your businesses who's your rock
1: in, in working life or family life well both <laughs> um i think the first person i would have to mention would be my dad um lost him five years ago uh he watched us everywhere uh and demanded all all times that we give our best he was the first person that i think made me really aware of how important it was to get up and get things done and work hard and do your very best and i think that's something that really the people who have influenced me through my life um yeah, they've tried to guide me in terms of trying to do different things and be better at certain ways, my coaches and teachers. But I think the thread has always been that if you do your very best, that you know you you've got a really great chance in life. And my dad was the person who instilled that into me and obviously miss him um so much to this day. Um my mum is a person who your mum's just you take your mum for granted, don't you? Because it's your mum. She just does everything for you, it's unconditional. Um and even now to this day she is probably the person in our lives who is you know so important um, my children absolutely love her they would much rather go and stay with her than me <laughs> um but then coming on to my professional life in my business life now I'd say I've probably got five or six rocks in the different businesses who really I rely upon to do it because I don't do it I you know come up with the idea of a lot of the businesses I'll buy the building I'll create the concept but then, without the people who've got the knowledge in each individual sector, um, they would all fall over. Uh, you know, I think at Salford, Karen from for the last five years has been incredible in terms of sort of one. I think first and foremost, she loves the club and devoted to the club, and that's the first thing I always say: is Are they really committed? And if they're committed, I will live with a lot of a lot of things. And Karen's committed to the club; she's determined; she wants success. Um, and I think that ultimately has, has has driven right the way through Salford in the last five years. In the hospitality sector, we had some difficulties in the early years, but I think since Winston Zara has come, um, you know, aligned with Stuart Davis, I think both of them working together now, with obviously the rest of the team, have given that business a real, you know, chance of succeeding in the future. Uh, and Winston is a brilliant businessman. He's a he's an owner in his own right. Uh, Anthony Kilbride, uh, in the development side, has been so loyal, so hardworking, so determined. Um, and on St. Michael's, we've been at it now for 13 years. It's the project that won't go away. Uh, but it is still the project that, for me, feels like it would give me the most satisfaction once built. With Anthony there, we, we're determined to get there and we will get there in the end. Um, and then in terms of the other side of things, people like you know Jed Tivy, who have been with me Fourteen years through various different businesses, um, I've obviously got now Michaela, who you know works closely with me every single day, who organises me and looks after me, makes sure that everything's in order, um, and just different people really who I couldn't do, do do what we're doing without. And like I say, it's um, the, the 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 one constant for the last twenty five years, other than Sir Alex Ferguson, have been the other four or five lads, you know, Giggsy, Scollzy, Butty, Phil, Bex. Um, have I missed any of them out there? <laughs> <laughs> I always think I'm going to miss some, one of them out. So Beck's Gigsy, he's butty, Phil. Yeah, there's six of us. And they have been, <laughs> there you go, there are six. And no matter what in life, they've always been there. We always get on with each other. We catch up once a month, play five a side with one another. It's almost like we've never been away from each other. And um, they have been a massive constant in our in our lives. And if you said to me, sort of, you know, they're the people who really drag you through um the difficult times when you're at united when you're having a tough time one of you is having a tough time whether it be personally or professionally or football whatever it might be they'll always pull each we'll always pull each other through so there are so many people uh, and then obviously I have my family at home who again you know my wife and two children and they're just a, a constant but they almost li- they almost um don't know really. I think the word relentless is something that I'm actually not that relentless at home. I do go home and I completely switch off. I haven't got any football memorabilia in my house. I don't watch television. I I really do switch switch off away from it, but I think I am quite difficult to live with. Uh I think the three of them think I'm weird. Um because they hear me talking all day for a living, talking to everybody. I go home and I don't want to talk. <laughs> so I just get home and I'm almost like on mute my head frazzled so i think that I, those three um because they're completely the opposite of me in the sense that they're just so calming and um you know completely opposite of the way i am professionally i can actually say there's three people who are almost like my reality check who sort of you know, if I come up with an idea and i'll sometimes go to jed and in his in his sort of own individual way he'll sort of tell me it isn't very good and he'll say right just forget about that concentrate on what you're doing and then sometimes i'll get wound up by something and you know rob's been my lawyer for 25 years now yeah he's my one where i saw you know where i, where I, where I just fly off the handle sometimes yeah. i say rob am i right here <laughs> and you'll go no gary not <laughs> thanks rob I'll, I'll pipe down
0: yeah <laughs> oh he's so, right he, rob yeah
1: yeah so rob rob and then die on a pr thing sometimes or a newspaper thing or a media thing she's obviously worked at with united for 15 years and I'll obviously look at the media. Sometimes I'll come in and I always believe there's a line that people shouldn't step over in terms of I, I think criticism is fair and all's fair in love and war. But then there are moments where I'll say, that's a disgrace that I need to go back on that. I'm gonna go for, her. I'm gonna go for them. And I'll ring her, always ring her up first to say, look, shall shall I go for them? And she'll know, part your ass, <laughs> sit down. Go and have a coffee, right? And I'll speak to you in twenty minutes. And if you feel the same, then we'll talk about it again. Usually, in twenty minutes I've calmed down. I mean, I'm like, it's that easy to calm me down. It's untrue, you know. And so I think the lots of people that work close to me, that uh, that know me, that can sort of basically wind me back in. <laughs> That's the main thing. Just winding me back in a little bit. Just don't let not, not letting the relentless just run away too much. Because I do live off I live off instinct and I live yeah. off energy and I live off sort of spark. So sometimes you don't really want people around you like that. You want people around you who are sort of reversing you back down the road a little bit when you're sort of running away with yourself. Definitely. And so just generally, I'm, I'm really lucky to have great people around me. My brother and sister are, are amazing as well. You're amazing. Everyone's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and let's all go and have a good time together.
0: If you're loving We Built This City, please could you take the time to leave a five-star review on your podcast platform? Thank you. And you're obviously very passionate about our city, Um, One Club Man, obviously UA92, and you brought the Stock Exchange back to life, which is actually my favourite room in the city, Um, and we were going to launch, we built the city there, weren't we, before uh, the lockdown. So what's so special to you about Manchester? So my first
1: experience of Manchester was uh, an 18 to sort of 21-year-old going out socially in the city to, to Ronnie's. Uh, to J.W. Johnson's, to cheerleaders, to the Love Train on a Wednesday night. And I loved it from a social point because it introduced me to nights out. I never had a night out until I was 18. Uh, I didn't have a drink till I was 18. Uh, So that made me sort of like fall in love with the city from a social perspective. But the big moment for me was when I moved into Manchester. Um, I had a relationship breakup when I was 25, 26, and I moved into number one Deansgate when it was first built. I think it's 2001 one two, um, and lived there for four years and that's when I really truly fell in love with the city when you live in the city and I moved out of the city in 2006 and always wanted to move back in and we moved back in six months ago so I would say my real sort of connection with the city came first started socially as it does for most people but really became passionate about the city more when I lived uh in the city for four years and realized how good it was and it was changing it was you know developing quickly um just far better experience uh, more people I mean, you think about manchester no one lived in the city up until 20 odd years ago it was only a few hundred people um and i just then decided that 2000 sort of 10 that i would move all my uh, property interests my business interests out of Bury and Bolton where i were into manchester Uh, and moved back into Manchester, like I say, six, seven months ago. And I don't think I'll live anywhere else ever again. Um, I love walking around the city, even in lockdown, just walking around the city. I'm seeing new buildings, new signs, new restaurants and thinking, I didn't even know that was there. Yeah, That's that's what this lockdown has given me, actually. These walks that I have, everyone, all of us are walking at <laughs> this moment in time. Uh, and I just walk out for, for 30 minutes to an hour every single day. And I just head off in a different direction.
0: Yeah, you really look up. You can start to look up yeah, and see what's there now, yeah.
1: you know, Usually when you're in the city, you're going from one place to another, you're on your phone or you're in your car or whatever it is you're doing. And you, <laughs> things are too fast. But, um, no, it's enabled me to sort of look at things a lot more closely and and understand it a little bit more. And now I don't want to really do anything outside of Manchester, uh, and that's not being uh, restrictive. It's not sort of lack of ambition. I always say to, you know, sometimes, whether it's in the hospitality company or whether it's in the development company, say, well, what what if we went and did something in, I don't know, let's say Birmingham? And I always then respond to them. I'm sure Birmingham's a great city. I'm sure Sheffield's a great city. Do you want to wake up in the morning at half six
0: and travel to Birmingham? Well, not really. Well, should we stay here then? <laughs> and we've got a job to do. We've got to rebuild the city, haven't we? We need to all stick together. I and mean, we need to concentrate on our own backyard here. I think. I mean, do you think we'll get our swagger back?
1: Yes, I've, I've got no doubts about that. It's just when it when it comes back, I've got no doubts that things will return to normal in a couple of years' time. It's just like it, I suppose, in some ways, it's almost like living through that last recession. I. I bought a couple of buildings in Manchester in the last recession for a price that I, can, I can't I can even imagine would ever exist again. It got that bad. I remember those moments when I was walking around the city where you just seemed, it was just dead. There seemed to be no life. It seemed that there was sort of for sale and to let signs up everywhere and just, it feel, felt really bad. But it came back um, and this is different. It's a health crisis, but it obviously will create an economic crisis as well. I do believe it'll absolutely come back I actually saw a report last week on the hospitality sector that Manchester, I think, was ranked third in the list of cities to return quickest. Edinburgh was top, I think Glasgow was second, and Manchester was third, which we hope is the case. I think what's happened in Manchester in these last 10 or 15 years, I do think that uh, the football's always been a big part of the city, but I do think having Pep Guardiola in the city, having Manchester United, obviously, and having Manchester City do what they're doing now, it's put Manchester really sort of, it's you know it's been at the centre of football, for, for, for the last four or five years. And I do believe now that we're, you know, the university sector is strong. Obviously, it always has been. The retention sector around students that go to universities in Manchester from outside is strong. I do believe that we will, it's not even a debate for me, it will come back.
0: This is the We Built the City podcast, celebrating the Mancunians that built and continue to build this amazing city. So, just to end, a couple of quick fire questions about Manchester, Gary. What's your favourite view of Manchester?
1: I do like the view out of the fifth floor of Hotel Football into the sort of mouth of Old Trafford. I do like that. I actually went, walked down, um, do you know, near Barca down there in Jukes mm. for a walk a couple of weeks ago. And I actually there was a, I thought, I'd never seen it in that light before. It was a really sunny day and I thought that was fantastic. So I'll say that or Old Trafford. Mm,
0: beautiful. Fish and chips or pie and chips?
1: Pie and chips, definitely. <laughs>
0: Do you know the fish huts opened up near you? Has it? I, yeah, I was I so excited when I saw that the other day. I'm not a great fan of battered fish, never
1: have been, <laughs> but I do like steak pudding and chips and yeah. pie and chips, sausage and chips as well, actually. <laughs> yeah.
0: What's your favourite Manchester band or artist? Favourite Manchester band
1: is Stone Roses.
0: And best Manchester pub?
1: Peril the Peak. <laughs> I used to go, so me and Ben Thorne, moved into Manchester. Uh, we'd both come out, we were both living separately. He was living in the Hacienda and I was living in number one Deansgate. We would go into the Peveril Peak and play darts and have a few pints, probably once, twice a week. It was amazing. And I'd, I've walked past it a few times in this lockdown and keep saying to myself, I'm going to go back in. I'm going to go back into that pub and sit in the corner. It's something I've not done since I've moved back into Manchester. I haven't done for a few years. It's just such a simple thing, but I'm going to definitely do it.
0: Oh, I love that building. I
1: used to um, love the grapes, by the way, the grapes. Yes, yes. But it went, and we used to have our Christmas parties there. And I do like uh, Mulligans as well.
0: Yeah, Mulligans, that's a great night out. And what do you miss most about Manchester when you're not here?
1: The people. Mm. People.
0: Yeah, they're just not the same anywhere else, are they? <laughs> Gary, thanks so much for your time today. It's absolutely brilliant. I feel completely inspired and I can't wait for the next uh, Zoom fitness session. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Gary Neville helped build the city by doing what Sir Alex Ferguson taught him at Manchester United, by not shying away from the problem, by not shirking, by owning up to mistakes and by not going missing and by giving his all every single day and not giving up. In the next episode, you're going to hear from Manchester born and bred RAF veteran and Manchester's first openly gay Lord Mayor from 2016 to 2017. He now serves as LGBT advisor to Mayor of Greater Manchester, Andy Burnham and his Deputy Lieutenant of Manchester. It's Dr. Carl Austin-Bayhan, OBE, DL.
1: Being Mr. Gay UK in 2001, I walked up Deansgate in a pride parade 15 years ago just wearing a pair of hot pants and a sash to 15 years later as Lord Mayor of Manchester being the first citizen walking that same route as the Lord Mayor and I think that just goes to show that you know you can be anything
0: This is a podcast from Roland Dransville PR Our mission is to build purposeful relationships in all we do If you do want to talk to us give us a call on the same number we've had for 23 years 0161 Two three six double one double two.